Okay, firing up here. November the 2nd, 2014, lecture discussion number 175 on the book of Romans. And here we go. I'll take another run at Matthew, uh, the parable of the talents, but actually that's not really accurate, as you know. It's, um, the parable of the talents is just the third one in that, in that group there that starts at 24, Matthew 24, 45, and ends at, uh, Matthew 25, 30. So 24, 45 to Matthew, uh, 25, 30 are these three parables. Uh, God has recorded them and placed them in a row in uh, Matthew, these three, and he's building one upon the other, and the last one is uh, Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the one we're focusing on, the parable of the talents. And that one contains what I believe is the culmination, uh, the crown um, the crown jewel of these three lessons, and that being uh, the, the end of it, where God has this discussion with a satanic figure, if not Satan himself. So, God is repeating some a conversation that he might have had with Satan, and that is speculative, I recognize, but the elements are all there. So that discussion ends the parable of the talents in, in some sense, and uh, God takes it apart. What he's taking apart is the fivefold lie that is Satan's, that he has universally spread into the angelic host as well as all of mankind. So God rips it to pieces, if you will and destroys it uh, once and for all. Uh, and as you know, I've had the case for many, many years that uh, Satan began by saying that it was an unsolvable premise. And God, of course, uh, does in fact solve it and answers it in many places in the uh, Bible. Uh, Matthew 25, 14 through 30 just being one, Genesis 15 being another, Matthew uh, four being a third and Gethsemane being uh, another, in fact. And so they're all over the place. You just have to find them and know where they are and know what they're about. So we have these three parables. Uh, so let's put those on the board really fast. Uh, Matthew, the, the, the three or the parables begin with the faithful and wise servant. So we have faithful, wise. Oops. And uh, it is contrasted, uh, the faithful, wise servant with the evil servant. So there's this contrast between those two, and they each do something that is uh, uh, what we would expect, actually. And then the, the next parable that comes across is the ten virgins. So there are ten virgins, and as you know, those are separated into five wise virgin, virgins. Sorry, You see these, this repetitive phrase now, and so you know they're tied together. And the other uh, are called foolish uh, Virgin. So, again, the same, almost identical contrast. And then, uh, finally, as I said, the, the finality, or the finale, if you will, of uh, these three parables is uh, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And we have three slaves uh, given large sums of gold, heavy gold, and two, of course, are faithful and good and receive well done and enter into the joy of the Lord and the other one is wicked, the last one. So once again, these contrasts are all the same and they're all in a row. And that tells you that they carry, the Bible always has done this everywhere that I have found it. There's an element that is always dragged along. That, that stays intact, if you will. So, though the story will change a little bit, there's an element of the first story. 
For example, I have the ending, if you will, you want to say that, it's really the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments move on into the church age, and they move on into the millennial age, but they change, uh, their role changes, for lack of a better term. That's what's happening here. I have a wise and an evil, and I, then I have a wise and a foolish, and then I have, uh, again, well done and faithful and um, ruler and enter the joy, and then I have inner condemnation, wicked and lazy. So the same thing is really being said three different ways. That's a technique, obviously, that the Bible uses a lot. And why does the Bible do it that way, do you think? Why does God do it that way? Yeah, he's trying to make sure you get it more than anything else. It's repetitive for a purpose, but each one of them has an element, and what you're to do is to combine all of the elements and put them in together into a totality. Okay, so it all begins in Matthew um, uh, 2445. The, these very amazing, by themselves they're amazing, but again, combined into one, that's when they come alive. So it begins in Matthew 2445, and God asks a question right there. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? That's his question. Every time God asks a question, you ought to stop immediately and say to yourself, wow, a question. I need to know the answer. Why does he ask a question? Because you know the answer? Probably not. He asks the question because you don't know the answer. Or you might think you know the answer and you hope you know the answer and you pretend to know the answer, but you really don't know the answer. So this question again, who then is a faithful and wise servant? What is he asking? Whom he, it goes on, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. So who is faithful? It is one that is made ruler over the household and who gives food. When Christ asks the question, and he does there, be assured that the answer is somewhere nearby. It's inferred somewhere. All three accounts is does the subsequent separation. What do I mean by that? At the end of these three parables is the separation of the sheep and the goats. So all of these parables share with the separation of the sheep and the goats this theme of coming. The master is coming. So the master comes, the master gives an assignment, and the master leaves, and the master is coming back. So that theme is there. An account will be at the end. When his second coming is, then there will be an accounting. If you want to think of it this way, there will be a trial. You're going on trial. So you have an assignment, if you wish, to think of it that way. And when he comes the second time, there will be an accounting. The evil servant in the first parable who said in his heart, the master is delaying his return. That's what he says. So the master came and he had a faithful servant that fed. And now he has an evil servant that says, oh, he's delaying his return so I can do something. What does he do? Are you familiar with the parable? I don't have time to read it today. What he does is he beats the other servant. He begins to beat his fellow slaves. And that evil servant will be cut in two. Now, when God says he's going to cut you in two, what does that mean? It's more complicated than you might imagine. 
And the master is going to come when the evil slave is not looking. Now compare that to the five virgins. Because five will not enter the, and I say ten, but I really am going to say five and five. Five will not enter the shut door. They also, if you're familiar with the parable, while the bridegroom is what? What's wrong? The bridegroom comes. There's ten virgins. They all fall asleep. And the bridegroom is delayed. Same wording. He's delayed here. The evil servant said he's, his coming, his return is delayed so I can beat the other slaves. I can torture them. I can terrorize them. That's the actual meaning. Because the master is delayed. And the ten virgins, they all fall asleep because the bridegroom is delayed. Matthew 25, 5. And five were not prepared. They were not wise. They were foolish. And so they didn't have any what? You know? Do you remember? They didn't have any oil. So five were foolish and they had no oil. So first I have a faithful and a wise and an evil who beats and tortures and his food is involved. Here I have ten virgins, five are wise, five are foolish, and the foolish don't have any oil. So what, what am I going to do? Transitive property of basic mathematics. If A equals B, then food equals oil, right? Now get ahead of me. Where am I going after that? I'm trying to solve something for you. What am I trying to solve? Matthew 24, or 25, 14 through 30, right? Ultimately, Christ says to the five foolish virgins, why do I keep trying to say virgins? Because I don't have enough medicine. Ultimately, Christ says to the five not wise, foolish virgins, I do not know you. And he will not open the door for them. How much trouble are they in? They're in a lot of trouble. What has happened to them? Christ does not open the door for you. Where are you now? You are in condemnation. You are in perdition. And people have said to me all throughout my career, if you can call what I've done a career, and that is a very generous uh, adjective for what I have done in my life, but, but all of my so-called career, people have come to me and said, of this parable of the five foolish and five wise virgins. How mean of God. Look at what God did. These ladies just forgot to buy any oil. They just forgot. They didn't, you know, they didn't, they fell asleep and they didn't get caught by surprise. Yeah, this guy, the evil servant, he's torturing people. Yeah, let's get rid of him. But all these uh, foolish virgins were doing was sleeping without any oil. Why didn't give them a chance? Man, they almost made it. They were right there. The door closed. Oh, golly. If you think that's what happened, you are in, uh, what's the word I want? You are ditch diving again. That is not what happened at all. I do not know you and he will not open the door. So what are the five foolish virgins then? If he won't open the door, what are they? Note the common element in all three. This delaying. We're going to have the same thing here with the three slaves, right? Remember that? The, the, 
the master came. Here I am, master, bridegroom, master. The master came. He gave everybody talents. And then he delayed a long time before he came back, right? So I have this element that's the same in all three. I have this delaying. Long time, Matthew 25, 19. God waits. He did it with Moses, right? At Exodus 32, Moses goes up the mountain and he's, he's late in coming back down. So what do the people do there? They build a calf. This delaying always occurs. And when he delays, then what does evil do? Evil begins to foment, to rise up. But God waits, he delays, and the evil and the foolish do not understand why he does so. And so they do the opposite of what he uh, is asking them to do. The evil, the foolish, they mistake his, his delaying. They do not know that it is love and mercy. They think instead that it is weakness and it is the time to strike. That element is in all three of these. They feel, fail to see the evil do that by waiting, by being long-suffering, God is extending opportunity for something. What is he doing? He's extending opportunity for salvation, repentance, salvation. And as you know, uh, secular mankind interprets his waiting and his delaying as evil. What do they say? They say that uh, God will not act. And therefore, the only choices are God is not acting. And he, so therefore, he's not acting because they say what? He cannot act. He is unable to act. And you should immediately recognize that they are declaring God or Christ, Christ, to be evil. See, what always comes next after they say that, that Christ will not act, Christ will not return, Christ will not end sin because he can't or he's, una- he's unable. What comes next would be this. Is it not evil, they will say, for the creator God to create a world knowing that he could not stop it from being consumed by its own wickedness. They will also continue their argument by proposing that God willfully and knowingly implanted the evil into his creation. He made the evil, he conceived the evil, and he pushed it into his creation while having no intention of restraining or ending it. And I very often respond to the legion of pastors, there's thousands of them, who assert that God does not save children with this question. And I hope you see how this all fits together. Is it your view, I ask them, that God is not willing to save children or that he is not able to save the children? Most of them will say what? Both. He's not willing to save all the children and he's not able to save the children. He can only save a few and that makes him evil. Does that make sense? Whenever you say the words in your head or to somebody that God is not willing or God is not able, um, you should be very afraid of yourself now because you're finding yourself siding with those who hate Christ. They say it about him all the time. There is no salvation because God has no intention of saving anybody. It is all an illusion and he has no ability to save anybody because his salvation system is flawed. That is one of the fivefold lies of Satan, right? And that is very common in churches today. And that is, again, modernism. We'll get to that in a minute. We did a little bit of that last week. Anyway, solve for yourself why it is that Christ leaves, because he is telling you that he's leaving all three times in a row. I'm leaving. I left. I came for the faithful and the wise. 
the evil servant saw that I was I had left and I was delaying, or at least he thought I was delaying my return, and so he became a tormentor of others. The five foolish virgins had no oil and were caught by surprise when I returned, just like the evil servant and the uh, wicked slave in the parable of the talents. Just buried the talent while I delay. So, understand that Christ waits and that he leaves. Now, you have to solve for yourself why it is that Christ does that, that God does that. Start with the position that it is what? I have to solve why Christ is delaying. Why he's telling me that he is delaying. Is he delaying? If you want to think of it that way, he is waiting. We're in a waiting period right now. Why is he doing it? What's the answer? It's good. Start there. If you'll start that it's good for Christ to wait. And that is why he is waiting. His salvation is being offered. Time is being given. That's mercy. And by the way... By waiting, no one will have an excuse. And though, um, as Matthew 25, 24 through 30 may explain, excuses are going to be attempted. But for today, I just want you to notice the common thread in these three parables. The evil servant, the wise servant, the wise virgins, the foolish virgins, the good and faithful who were given the talent, the wicked and lazy, the sheep and the goats being separated. God is the master. God is the bridegroom. God is the master. Then the separation that is occurring, the faithful and wise go to a different place than the evil and wicked. The, the, the wise virgins go in and the foolish virgins, the door is shut. Three slaves have heavy gold. The wicked slave buries it. Look what I have done. I have said that food equals oil equals talent. I've also said that I have faithful, wise servants. I have five wise virgins. And I have two uh, good and faithful, well done. I have one evil servant, I have another wicked and lazy servant with the talent, and therefore I must have what kind of virgins? What do I got? I got evil. Got to. I mean, they're all the same. It's evil, wicked, evil. So why is it evil to not have any oil? Why is it evil to bury the talent? Why is it evil to not give food? So, very, very few commentators, if you study the ten virgin parable, and I hope you do, very, very few see the five foolish virgins as wicked, evil, and lazy. But that is the only conclusion you can have. It must be so. Because the door is not open for them. Christ says to them, I do not know you. That is not good news. Solemn words indeed, and we're going to have to investigate that next week. We'll compare Luke 13, 22 to 31 to that particular uh, parable of those ten virgins, which I've done before, but it's a good time to bring it up again because of where we are. And, and there we're going to find more clues as to the identity of the five foolish virgins, which is going to lead us then to the meaning 
of the talent. Or such is my plan. I'm getting ahead. So, um, but I just, today, I just want you to note that relationship between the food, the oil, and the talents, and I hope that makes sense. And I should probably really quickly read those verses because I know a lot of you have not been here. So let's pound that in and then we'll move on to the next phase of today's lecture. So here we go, Matthew 24. Let me read 24, 45 through 46. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find doing so. But the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Okay, now skip over to uh, Matthew 25, 2 through 4, the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. It is foolish to take a lamp with no oil. What are you thinking? But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, there it is again, they all slumbered and slept. Now, 25.15. This is a parable of the talents. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Okay, so again, that delaying element in all three, the food, oil, talents. Now, if you were here last week, and why wouldn't you be? Okay, don't answer that. We have elections coming on Tuesday, don't we? That should be very interesting. I think that's a real opportunity for us to find things out. I will be fascinated by it. As I've said many times, I think that um, politically this is the most anti-Israel political climate in the United States in my lifetime, without a doubt. Does that continue? Does it worsen? Is it uh, reversed? That fascinates me. Okay, we're moving on. If you were here last week, hopefully you remember that I read a fairly lengthy question asked by Mark from Texas. I began to take it on, and that's what I'm doing again today. He may not recognize that I'm answering his question or taking on the subject that he brought, and you may not recognize it, but that's okay. That is what I think I'm doing. But his question was a couple of things. It was principally this, though. What is the origin, he asked, of modernism? Now, he didn't say modernism. Actually, what he was saying was kenosis theory, but the kenosis theory is modernism. Get to that in a moment. What is the origin of this stuff? Um, when did it take hold of the, of the church? Who primarily is promoting kenosis now? What is their objective and their motive or modernism now, modernistic thinking? The words are pretty obvious. K E N O O. Can O 
means kenosis. That's how it's translated for us. It's called kenosis theory again. Let me put that on the board so that you see it. And that way, if you ever run into it, you'll know that it isn't just some weird word I made up. It comes out of that Greek um, root. It, it's translated emptied himself. So the theory is pretty much this. It comes out at Philippians 2.7. And by the way, ask yourself, how is it that Mark's question and kenosis theory and modernism and Gnosticism, all that which we discussed last week, and these parables, how is it that those are clues for the meaning of the talent? Because uh, as you know, that is the plan. I have to keep repeating that. For those of you who think I have completely lost my mind, which is possible. I have a family history. It means emptied himself. And I've said many, many times that kenosis theory, or sometimes it's referred to as condescension theory. I've said many, many times it's heresy. It is blasphemy. Make no mistake. I need to interject right here, though, that the term condescension of Christ has different meanings to different theologians. You've got to read carefully. You've got to know what the theologian thinks it means so that when he uses the term, you can put his meaning to it because it is used differently by different people, as I just said. The terms condescension and humility and emptied are now used by both sides of this dispute and they have become commingled and co-opted and corrupted, all of the codes, right? So it's necessary to ask what is meant specifically by emptied. If I'm talking to, let's just pick one, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, I'm going to get a completely different answer about what those three terms mean. He will use the same words. If you ask the Mormons today, or the Jehovah's well, the Mormons specifically, is Jesus Christ God, what will they answer? Yes, they will answer. And now what are you left to do? You're left to argue over the definition of what? God. Because they have a different definition than we do. That is part of the process. It's part of the scheme, if you will. It's no different than the political system. All the words are different. Defined differently by the same people. It's necessary to ask Specifically, what, what, what do they mean when the kenosis theory people say that Christ emptied himself? When he humiliated himself or when he condescended? What are they meaning and, and who is it that's using them? Overwhelmingly, those words are utilized to tear into Christ's inherent godliness. They, they want to separate out his godliness from his humanity. I should say they, should, they are attempting to separate. It can't be done. You cannot separate his inherent godliness from his humanity. It can't. It's impossible. It's impossible for Christ to be anything but God. Again, inherence, imminency, not imminent, immanency. I have to emphasize the correct syllable. Permanent. Permanency, intrinsic, all of those words are the same. They all describe Christ's godhood. You, it, is, it is not possible to separate it from him. By the way, C.S. Lewis, who I often quote because I appreciated some of the thinking that he has done, 
He said this about the Bible. You cannot get rid of the Godhood of Christ. It is just oozes up inside the Bible. You try to eradicate it, you, you're hopeless. You'll end up taking out every single sentence in it. But a very large segment of Christendom refuses to describe Christ as permanently God. Or to say it better, always God at all times, anytime. They refuse to describe Christ as permanently God. Christendom is not necessarily believing Christians, uh, I might add. It's the, the whole, what uh, would they would describe Christendom, they who being they, how they would say. So all of that to say that uh, we must be aware, we must beware, actually, of those who teach that Christ had a period of time when he was emptied of his godhood. Because that's what they mean. That is kenosis theory. Christ, Philippians 2.7, they read that word and they say it means he emptied his godhood. He was no longer God. That's kenosis theory. Now, I don't think that at all, as you know. I have reasons. Because I recognize that God is infinity. So all I do is exchange the words. You've heard me do this. How mathematically stupid is it to say that he emptied himself of his infinity? Because how long does it take to empty infinity? If I've got a bowl of infinity and I want to pour it out, how big a bowl is it? How long is it going to take? It's nonsense. It can be immediately discounted with just that. And, but I keep going to these folks. I, if you, if I can see that it is possible to empty infinity, then what's the next obvious question? Where did he put his infinity? I continue to grant the hypothesis. Now I have God himself walking around Israel. And he's no longer God. Because why? What's the purpose again? What necessitates this impossibility? It's impossible, but if I concede it, why did he do it? What do they say? Why is it necessary for God to not be God, if I concede that it's even possible? Now, Philippians 2.6 says that Christ is in the form of God. How does he remove the form of God? What's he got? A deforming agent? Kryptonite? Anyway, Mark from Texas wanted to know all of that, and he wanted to know when did this bile that was vomited on, out onto the floor of the church. When did that happen? And who thinks like this and why? And obviously there's great confusion over Philippians 2.7, along with Isaiah 50, as we pointed out last week, along with Hebrews 5, 7 through 11, and Romans 8.3, and Ezekiel 1.26, and Exodus 24.10, Luke 1.35, I can go through all of them, and there's another hundred besides those. Tremendous amount of confusion over all of these verses that seem to imply that somehow God emptied his infinity out. And they don't imply that at all. 
They just say that God hid himself. That's what they say. There's a big difference between emptying your godhood and hiding your godhood. God likes to wait, and God likes to hide. How come he likes to hide? For the same reason, he likes to wait. Because it's good. Always start there. Why is it good that he delays? Why is it good that he hides? Is it good that he empties his godhood? No, it's not good, so therefore that can't be what he did, and it's impossible in the first place. So this is all the mystery of godliness, the incarnation, 1 Timothy 3.16. Let me reemphasize the word mystery. This is the mystery. That means it's not easy to figure out. The mystery of godliness is not ever solved by casting out the deity of Christ. You don't say, I'm going to solve this mystery in 1 Timothy 3.16 by casting out the deity of Christ. To the contrary, it is solved, the mystery of godliness is, by steadfastly declaring that the deity of Christ is always there, can never be removed, impossible to be separated, no matter what. When you have that view, you will solve the mystery of godliness. Now you've got ten more to go, because there's eleven mysteries. And yes, I know what all of these issues are. I know likeness is a problem for many. They see the word likeness. Philippians 2.7. They're confused by likeness. Christ came in the likeness of men. Likeness suggests similarity. That's true, but it also... Suggests what else? It suggests difference. Because Christ did come in humanity, but his humanity is different than our humanity. What is the difference between his humanity and our humanity? His humanity is good, which means his humanity is perfect. His humanity is sinless. That is the definition of good. Our humanity, not so good. Look at the person next to you. Their humanity, not so good. Why do the wives always look at the husbands and the husbands never look at the wives? Because the husbands have learned this is a trap. And they just go straight ahead like they should. And I'm proud of every single one of you. You did not fall for that a bit. You wives, you knew that they deserved a looking. And you gave them one. Congratulations. Anyway, (coughs) point is, Christ's humanity is perfect, pure, good. Ours is not. So it's similar, likeness of a man, but different. Another difference sorry, is that he is permanent God. Infinite God. Absolute God. That's the difference. We ain't. I have always been stunned. About, you know, the Japanese did it in World War II. They, they proclaimed Hirohito to be God. The Koreans are portraying, uh, I can't remember his middle name now, but uh, Un, Sun Un. They're proclaiming him to be God. They say that he plays golf and all he gets is holes in one. All kinds of complete, total, irrational thinking. They're starving to death and they have no lights. What do we call that? That's right, communism. Want to see what communism does? 
you starve to death and you have no electricity or heat. Just look at a map someday of South Korea and North Korea and look at the difference. I'm always fascinated by people that say, well, they're doing communism bad. If only I was in charge, I would do it better. No, communism will always end up the same. It'll always be communism. You'll always starve. There'll always be a political class that has money, and then there'll be the rest of us. That's how it works. That's a rant, I know. Christ is permanent, absolute God. We are flawed, sinful human beings. We're not God. That's what likeness means. In the likeness of man, that's what it's talking about. It says in Philippians 2.6, right before that, Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does it mean? What does that mean? He didn't consider it robbery to be equal uh, with God. Notice, by the way, the past tense of that. When did Christ not think that he was equal to God? Let me repeat that in a different way. He thought that Godhood belonged to him. Notice the past tense. So what's the obvious question? When did he think that Godhood belonged to him? What's the answer? The easy answer is, he thought that before he created time. So it is a timeless response. Next question. How can someone who is in the exact form of God, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, the exact size and form of God, who thought before he created time that he rightfully and indisputably is God and entitled, therefore, to all the divine attributes, perfect equality. He thought that before he made time. It's unchallengeable. His godliness. In fact, by the way, there's nothing in Scripture that ever challenges the Godhood claim of Christ by God. The Godhead. In fact, the opposite is true. It's always accepted as fact. So how does somebody who thinks that he is God and is affirmed that he is God by the Godhead, how does somebody disremember and set aside that kind of thinking? How do I stop thinking that I'm God once I'm God? Does God ever think he's not God? So how do I empty myself if I'm God? I have to disremember that I'm God? I have to unthink that I'm God? Only self-existent God can think like God. How much thinking does it take to think like God? How much thinking do you have? How much thinking does God have? What percentage of God's thinking is your thinking? (laughs) It, It isn't measurable. How do you think like God? Only self-existent God can do that. And God cannot unthink. God thinks completely and totally, I'm sorry, Christ thinks completely and totally like God. He cannot not think that way. Does that make sense? It's impossible for him to not think in totality, in size, in complexity like God. Again, who else can do this? Contrast with Satan, by by the way, Isaiah uh, 14. This is a refutation of Isaiah 14. 
Okay, hidden in all of that was my thinly veiled attack on Gnosticism and its infant child, modernism, Mariolatry. Also, if you were here last week, the contemporary emotion-based entertainment theologies that are Christless. You can go to some of these huge churches and they will sing for hours and never is the word Christ mentioned. It's just not mentioned. He's not there. It's astonishing. I've often wondered why that is. I've been to those churches. I have been asked to comment on sermons. I've been asked to comment on their service. And one of the questions I've always answered or asked them is, uh, how come there's no songs about Christ? There's songs about the Holy Spirit. There are songs about God. No songs, they're Christless. Are very Christ diminished. Why are you doing that? Is that a good idea? I think not. But that's uh, very common today. Also uh, hardly hidden is a clue to the meaning of the talents given on the basis of abilities. That's what I'm done. Some, uh, something, by the way, that many of you, I'm very proud of you, have already figured out. Okay, next phase. Three-phase sermon today in holding with the three-phase theme that I started with. I got a call this week. Bill the cow. Call me, what was that, Monday or Tuesday? Monday. So he knew that I needed to get right on this. He correctly suggested that I was remiss. He said, uh, um, you, are, you have failed to include the parables of Jeremiah in your study of Matthew 25. And I hadn't even considered it. And I wasn't even sure what he was talking about. He didn't say parables of Jeremiah. If he had, I would have known. As many of you do, uh, I started my lecture series 25 years ago. Was anybody here for Jeremiah? Yeah, a couple of you were here. That's 25 years ago. (laughs) Felicia just fainted. That's amazing, isn't it? And I did the parables of Jeremiah 25 years ago. And I knew instantly that once I realized that that's what Bill was saying to me, because he said Jeremiah 13 and it didn't register. And then finally when he said an element of it that was the parables of Jeremiah, I went, oh, wow, he's right. And as soon as I hung up, I thought, I'm going to go find those lectures. How hard can they be? They're in a box. I, I'm a hoarder. <laughs> I'm going to find them. I couldn't find them. I have no idea where they are. They're yellow pads or white pads. I'm not sure. They're, but they're, I've got them, I know. They're probably in storage. We've put some church stuff in storage. So they're in a box, a drawer somewhere. But So that was not an option. So now I wanted to see um, if 25 years ago, if I had connected Jeremiah 13 to Joshua 7, because that would be something that I would do. And uh, and I went through all, because this isn't the Bible I had in those days, so I went back and found the older one, and uh, an old orange one that I had, and looked through it, and um, it wasn't there. I had a few notations. I did okay. 
I had Moses hiding in the cleft. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Exodus 33, 18-23. I at least got Moses. That was obvious. And then I had taken one of the parables and I'd moved it to John 2, the wedding of the wine, and I'd gotten the Israelology out of it because at the time I was reading Fruchtenbaum's book, Israelology, and so that was uh, where I went primarily, Ezekiel 4. But I had nothing on Matthew 25, 14 through 30, which was, as Bill pointed out, a shame. So that's what we're going to do today. I think you'll see why. I hope you have as much fun as I did. I will hope, I will try to make it fun. I, as you know, seldom accomplish that, the fun part. So here we are, 25 years later, in Jeremiah 13. We'll just read the first 13 verses. And you start to consider how it fits with. These two parables fit with Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Because it's astonishing. The parable of the linen belt or the linen sash and the parable of the wine bottle. So here we go. Thus the Lord said to me, go and get yourself a linen sash, Jeremiah 13, 1, and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. Right off the bat, we got something cool, don't we? To make room for this. So I'll race. I'll write down. He's got a linen sash. And whatever we do, don't put it. Put it around your waist. Uh, the old King James says loins. Uh, no water. you got at least ten questions right there. So I got a sash, this is Jeremiah, so I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Good idea. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, the second time, take the sash that you acquired which is around your waist. By, by the way, where did Jeremiah get it? He said, go get a linen sash. Jeremiah said, okay, got one. Where? Linen sash store? Walmart got linen sashes? Where do you get linen sashes? Somebody's got them. Jeremiah knew where to get it. And he knew what it meant. It isn't an accident that it's linen. It's not an accident that's around his waist. It's not an accident. It's a belt. This is interesting. Don't get it wet. Take the sash that you acquire, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates. How far away is that? If I'm right. Duh. That's 700 miles right away. That's a long trip for a guy back in those days. Now, some people don't think so. They think it's three to six miles away, and they make one word mean another word, and they got it all looking the same, and they hope this is right, because they don't like that 700-mile trip. I love that 700-mile trip. And we'll get into that next week. Okay. Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I got a rock, and it's got a hole in it. What's the obvious question? How big a rock? How big a hole? By the way, when I put those words on the board, you should be going, holy mackerel, honey child, that's some cool stuff right there. I got a rock with a hole in it. 
Now it, so I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now that's it immediately, and that's where Bill said, uh, "Why haven't you attached the hidden sash with the with uh, Matthew twenty-five fourteen through thirty?" And I went, "Oh, I had no excuse." Now it came to pass after many days, what do we got there? It got a delay. That's what we got. Here we go again, right? That the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug. Got to dig it up. And I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts, who walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is useless, completely useless. Profitable for what? Nothing. There's nothing. It's wasted. Gone. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. So that's telling you, what the sash means with respect to Israelology, says the Lord. And that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. I do not know you, but they would not hear. Therefore you shall speak to them this word. Now we're into the parable of the wine bottles, or the wine jars. I think that that's the case. Some people will say skins. But you'll see why they're obviously pottery in my view. Therefore you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. So he says to Jeremiah, go speak to them. Tell them every bottle should be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine. That is a statement of great evil. It should be obvious at some point why. Every bottle will be filled with wine. Oh, we already know that every bottle will be filled with wine. That, by the way, is one of the lies of Satan, that every bottle will be filled with wine. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, he's answering what they say, right? So I have God talking to somebody again, just like I do in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Same conversation, a little bit different, but pretty much the same. Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have any mercy, but will destroy them. I will shut the door. Essentially. Right? 
So there they are, the two parables of Jeremiah, the linen belt, or the sash, the linen sash, the wine bottles, and the Israel reference is unmistakable. I have to hurry. First thing you should know is that the linen sash is a priest belt. That's how Jeremiah got it. That's why he knew what it was. Go get a priest's sash and put it around you. And, then, and of course, he would know because of his prophet status, his father status. And I have a priest's sash, a linen sash. And uh, it is, uh, of course, the nation of priests that is Israel, right? So you see Christ or God said that uh, that uh, put, he, put, he put it around his waist just like Israel is attached to him. So you see the sash and the relationship to the nation of Israel. That's without dispute, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Having said that, he said, take the sash that you acquired and hide it. There in a hole in the rock, so the sash is hidden, and it's necessary to dig it back up because it was buried, and it's buried uh, near Babylon. He said, take it to Babylon and bury it. When it's finally uncovered, it's profitable for nothing. It's completely useless. And then God explains his parable in part. Israel's great pride will be ruined as the sash was ruined. And that would be the basics. But let's take another run in. The priesthood wears a linen sash. What does it look like? I'm going to propose to you that it is obvious what it looks like. It is... Let me make the word over here. It is... Beautiful. It's ornate. We're going to do what with this beautiful sash? We're going to bury it. Just like who? Just like Achan. Buried a beautiful garment. Then he says, don't wash it. No wash. Let this beautiful garment wear it, and it's going to get what? Filthy. Some think it was on the inside. Some think it was on the outside. doesn't really matter. Don't wash it. Then the Lord came a second time. It's first, second time, he says, go to Babylon. And I want you to find a rock with a hole in it. Now, obvious question, how big a rock is it? How big a rock is it? Did you think it was a rock, maybe size of a pickup truck? What would you think? Maybe a little rock, it's got a hole in it, and he hides it inside the hole, maybe puts mud over top of it. Here's what it is. The context makes it clear that it's a prison it has been hollowed out in stone, the face of a rock, a rock face. So what is it really? It's a cave. Go to Babylon, find a cave, go in the cave, dig a hole, and bury the beautiful sash in it. After a long delay, the beautiful buried garment is dug up. So hiding and burying it had made it completely useless. 
So let me recap that a little bit. A prophet priest of Israel lets his beautiful sash become filthy, doesn't wash it, treks to Babylon, buries the sash in a prison carved out of a rock face. And think about that again. The beautiful sash is buried in a carved out rock. Who's that? I have entombment in a cave, right? Prison. That's very helpful now in solving what this challenge is. I'm just piling clues onto you one after another. The talent question of Matthew 25:14. So, as long as the sash was in the priest's possession, though unwashed, God was speaking to Israel. Once the sash buried in Babylon, God waited many was buried in Babylon. God waited many, many days. He's delaying. When he speaks again the third time, he refers to Israel as what? Evil. Wicked. Though Israel was tied to God at one time, nonetheless they are not hearing him and would not hear him. Then this very cryptic exchange occurs. God says, every jar, vessel, bottle shall be filled with wine. And they say mockingly with derision back to him, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? What are they talking about? You solve the wine and the bottle and the jars, if you will, the vessels. You you solve that by going to John 2. The wedding feast, the first miracle of Christ, is vessels with wine put in it, right? Ultimately. And he says, behold, to their answer, to their mocking derision. He says, I'm going to put you into helpless intoxication. You're going to be horribly drunk, the nation of Israel. Which means you're going to stagger around and crash into one another And when you're drunk in the darkness in those days, they always fell into big holes, what they call the fatal abyss. Because it was dark, they were drunk, down they go. Happened to travelers, they're overtaken by darkness. And that's what he says, I'm going to do to you. I'm going to put you, I'm going to give you over to a reprobate mind. And you're going to crash into each other and fall into the dark abyss. That's what he says. Finally, I know that's the favorite word here, as the plethora of musicians come forward. It's a mass of musicians. Here are things we've got to figure out. What is this beautiful sash? What does it represent? What is the significance of the water? By the way, I have water. What else do I have in the parables? I have wine. Oh, water, wine. That's probably just happenstance. Um, And I have Jeremiah. I have to figure out who he is, what his role is, what they are symbols of. And then I've got to take all of that and turn around and send it into Matthew 25, 14 through 30, which some of you have already done while I spoke it to you. Congratulations. For the rest of you, we'll see you next week.